So here we begin our study of the book of Colossians. It begins with Paul writing, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. So we know that it's written by Paul. Later on in the letter, we'll find out, like some of the other letters in the New Testament, that it was written while his arms are in chains. And it's uh, also interesting in that he writes to the church in Colossae, but the church has two addresses, as Paul writes to them. It's the church that's in Colossae, but it's two also the church that is in Christ. And every New Testament church has those two addresses. Yes, they may be in Rome or Corinth or Ephesus or wherever the, the, the location may be, but where they really are and why they get to be the church, the body of Christ, is because where their real address is, that really matters and is eternal, is that their address is in Christ. And so for us as well. We may be the church in Hampton Roads, but we really are in Christ. And I, and I love what he addresses there. He says, to God's holy people in Colossae. Well, in, in the ESV and many of the other translations, most of the other English translations, it says to the saints in Colossae and to the faithful brother and sisters who are in Christ. Paul addresses them as saints, hagios, the sanctified ones, the consecrated ones. Those who have been made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ gathered together to form the body of Christ in Colossae in Christ. And so here you are the saints, those that have been redeemed and plucked out of the world by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you sit here now with the recognition and with the address of, of the apostle to the saints. It is what all are designated as when you have been reborn to this new life in Jesus Christ. And anyone who is hagios or sanctified, it's not just that you are really, really good, but you are. It's something more intense than that. It has an edge to it. There are fangs. There are teeth to this. You are set apart as a commando force in Colossae or in Hampton Roads as those that have been consecrated for a special purpose and mission. And, and so we gather. So we gather with this designation and this awe-inspiring idea as we begin the letter. Now, of course, the, the, the church um, is, is written by Paul, as I mentioned. In, in Colossians 4, he'll make it clear that he's in chains. For example, he'll say, uh, Pray that God's going to open a door for us so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. So, obviously, the, the idea starts to come, come across. Uh, also, he says in 4, My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you greetings, as does Mark. And we read about Aristarchus being with Paul in Ephesus while, while he is uh, evangelizing in Acts chapter 19. In Colossians 4.18, he says, I, Paul, as he concludes, write this greeting with my own hand, and then here's his concluding remarks. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Wow. That's a, that's a bit of an impact. 
as, as the letter concludes. Imagine getting that letter. Also in Colossians 1.24, which we'll read on, on uh, next Sunday. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering, what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is lacking. Also, what's interesting is Paul has never been to Colossae. And as he writes this, he says in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea. Uh, I'll get to that in a minute. Laodicea and Colossae were right next to each other. And for all who have not met me personally. Now, Colossae is not a big city. One of the kind of the more interesting uh, historic uh, historians in, from a secular sense is uh, Strabo and Tacitus. They both write about Colossae. And, and Strabo actually lists it among the small cities. And he, he gives a list of small cities, and, it, and it's, it's among those. It's not in Ephesus. It's not at Corinth. It, it's actually one of the kind of the, the more minor towns. Uh, so how did the gospel get there? Most likely, the way that the gospel get there is through a guy that we're going to meet in just one moment in this passage. Paul, while in Ephesus, in, in Acts 19, it says that he, while in Ephesus, after he's kind of kicked out of the, the synagogue, he goes to the lecture halls of Tyrannus. And while he's there, he preaches the gospel with every free moment that he has. Interestingly, he's still working as a tent maker all during the day. And his only break is from like 11 to 4. And during this break from 11 to 4, it's that time that he uses, not for the siesta, as everybody else would do, but that's where he gets busy. And that's where he, pre he preaches the gospel during his coffee break. Now, it's a longer coffee break and it's a siesta break, but he preaches the gospel and he preaches it so tirelessly from 11 to 4 every day in, in the break of his tent making duties that it says that all the province of Asia was able to hear the word of Christ. And so what likely would have happened is there in, 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 in uh, Ephesus, he, he not only met up with Aristarchus, who went on to preach the gospel in, in parts unknown, uh, not, not only have, having met um, Epaphras, but also Philemon. And we'll, we'll meet him a little bit later, too. Uh, Philemon and Epaphras then go on to, to preach the word in their hometowns. Their hometown was Colossae. And so the book... That, that is written to Philemon at the, at the uh, end, end of the New Testament, that is written to the church in Colossae. And so what many people have speculated, as you think about all of these, these different books, is that what, what most of likely would have happened is Paul's in prison, and uh, Tuchicus and Epaphras bring to mind to him stuff that's, that's going on. Not only that, but while he's in prison in Rome, he meets Onesimus. Onesimus is the slave of Philemon, uh, who wasn't converted by Philemon, wasn't treated so nicely by Philemon, and doesn't treat Philemon so nicely either. Matter of fact, he's a runaway slave, and he probably stole a bunch of stuff from the house church leader of the church of Colossae. He wants to make haste and disappear into the crowds. If you're going to disappear into the crowds, you don't stay in Colossae because there's not that many people there. But there are a lot of Jews there, by the way. Interestingly, in a small town, there's uh, the census says, uh, unlike uh, Philippi, which didn't have many Jews at all, Colossae had maybe as many as like 11,000 Jewish men. That's a pretty big deal if the population of the place is only you know, 70,000 or so. So anyway, uh, onward we go. What, what probably happened, if, if you look at this map, is that uh, 
The slave Onesimus, the slave of the house church leader, makes his way out of there and ends up in Rome to disappear into the anonymity of the crowds. While there, meets Paul. Paul converts him and sends him back with a letter so that Philemon, the house church leader back in Colossae, will receive him. Well-crafted letter by Paul. Amazing rhetoric. Very persuasive. If you received that letter, you would have no choice but to say, Oh, Onesimus, who stole all my stuff. Uh, welcome home. Uh, because it's written so well and so effectively. Well, we'll study it in one of our midweeks coming up here. But anyway, so... Onesimus is coming back home, but he's going back home to Colossae. So Paul probably decides, and this is probably right around the year 60, 58 to 60. Paul probably decides, you know what? Let me also write a letter to the church in general in Colossae. Not just this little kind of issue that, that is going on between Onesimus and Philemon. But you're going to Colossae anyway. Epaphras has just come here. He's been pleading with me to help the church in Colossae as well as the church in Laodicea. So let me go ahead and pen a letter. And I'll pen a letter to Laodicea. I'll pen a letter to Colossae. And then they can switch the two letters off between one another and be able to get a little bit of spiritual encouragement from me. So off they go. But then I think what Paul realizes is, you know what? Since I'm already sending this letter with these guys... And they've got to travel back from Rome, land on the shores right there in Asia. That whole area there that you, that, that you see where, where the uh, cities are located, that is known in the Bible, at least, as Asia. Today it's Turkey. Uh, but if they're going to go there, he's got to land in Ephesus. It's a pretty big place. I spent three years there. They probably could use some spiritual encouragement. And by this point, the Gentiles have probably dominated the church and are probably feeling pretty inferior uh, to the Jews that are there. So let me go ahead and send a letter to them too. And so I think what happened was the letter to Philemon was the reason for all of these letters being written. Going to Colossae anyway, he's like, let me, let me write them a letter. And then you notice that Colossae, the Colossians letter and the Ephesians letter are so similar. When you get a chance someday, just read them both side by side. You see content, 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 so similar, parallel all the way through. But the letter to Ephesians is interesting because it may have been uh, Paul's attempt not just to write to the church in Ephesus because he doesn't give a lot of personal greetings. He does in all the other letters, lots of personal greetings by name. You know, hey, tell that dude that, you know, he owes me money and to give me my scrolls back. And you know what? I, he doesn't say that, but, you know, but it's, it's, but it's that kind of intimacy that goes on in these letters, but not to the, the, the letter to the church in Ephesus. To that letter, there's no real personal greetings that go on. And the oldest documents that give us the letter to the Ephesians does not say to the church in Ephesus. It just says to the churches. And it may have been a letter that would have been circulated throughout all the churches in that area. Smyrna, Pergamon, the, the, the whole kind of uh, Asia Minor area there. And, and, and that may have been the cause for a more general letter of, of encouragement and unity that would have spread around, which is what the letter of Ephesians is. And again, this is just speculation, but it seems to make pretty cool sense. But what we have here is a situation with Philemon and Onesimus that prompts Paul to go ahead and encourage the church more thoroughly because Epaphras is such a cheerleader for his church. And he's there with Paul and he's like, Paul, I know you've never been there, but you've got to come. You've got to help. Please come and help them to be able to, to know the depth of truth. And if you can't do that, hey, could you at least write him a letter? And you know what? If you could write it and be inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's a bonus too. And that's what happens. And here it is in our Bible. Praise God. Uh, now, what, one other thing that is pretty interesting, and it's, it casts 
an ominous tone over this whole letter is that this letter was probably written around the years of 57 to 60. And Tacitus and Eusebius all write that around between the 7th and 10th year of Nero, Nero took the throne in 54. So that would put it somewhere around 60, 61. Uh, around the year of 61, a major earthquake devastates this area here. And the tri-city area of Colossae, Laodicea, and Herapolis are devastated by this earthquake. Everything is razed to the ground. And Colossae doesn't recover for perhaps over 50 years. And when it does, it's merely a village. And many of the people receiving this letter may have in fact died just one year after receiving the letter. Or maybe even, even less. The, the, the timing is so tight. One of the reasons that we know the letter could not have been written after 61 and why people always date this letter between the very end of the 50s and no later than 61 is because we know the earthquake came at that time. Most people would like to date it right up to 61. So most people date it right before this earthquake comes and shatters their very lives and brings in eternity. And so the kind of setting your mind on things above the eternal perspective that is in this letter, all of a sudden it all comes home. And one other thing that's important to note, not only are there a lot of Jews there, but it is a bit of a crossroads. And for some reason or another, it seems like this area was quick to incorporate um, a, a lot of different religions. And it, it kind of create a, an amalgamation. You know, today you probably meet people who you ask, hey, well, you know, you got a relationship with Jesus. You want something like that? And they're like, yeah, you know, I like Jesus. But you know what? I'm interested in all things spiritual. And, and I like to be able to appreciate what I can gain from all different streams of faith. And, and it all comes together and enriches my soul. And you vomit a little bit in your mouth. Uh, then you swallow it. And, and then you know, try to kind of craft a, a kind of a well thought out retort uh, to what it was that they said. And kind of the preeminence and beauty of Jesus. But in Colossae, there's not like a massive Jewish issue in this letter. Which makes many think that the, the really big Jewish population, not unlike what happened uh, at, at the time of, of 2 Kings 11, would have engaged in what's called syncretism, or this kind of meshing together with the other philosophies that were around them. Took the edge off of Judaism itself, so that Judaism isn't even really a big, big issue, uh, although there are some aspects to it that, are, that, that, uh, that Christianity faces, but it has been kind of watered down and disseminated uh, into some sort of knowledge, philosophy, that may have been gripping the area. There was a, a philosophy that comes along later, even a religion called Gnosticism. I'll talk about it later as we make our way through the letter. Not, not super critical right now. We've got a lot, a lot of ground to cover and in a beautiful beginning of this letter to make sure that, that we read through. Um, and uh, I think other than that, I think keep in, keep in mind that Laodicea, 11 miles away, Hierapolis, about 12 miles away, all very tightly put together in Colossae, right there amongst those three cities. Later in the book of Revelation, when Paul talks about Laodicea being lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, I wish you were one or the other. Well, it's, it's likely that Hierapolis, and, and I've been there, it's the place of hot springs. And, and it is known for the value of its hot water. Colossae had very clean running cold water. And it was valued because it was the source of, of potable water. For, for the entire area. Laodicea was kind of neither. 
And so that, that word picture that kind of comes across there in Revelation 3.14 to 21, uh, that, that's all kind of a wordplay of those three sister cities that were all together. It's like, hey, at least Herapolis, you got value in the hot water. Colossae, you got value in the cold water. Laodicea, not so much. And matter of fact, it's kind of putrid, and I want to spit it out of my mouth. Uh, so that, that, that all goes with that. And one last thing is that the area, while it's in Asia for Colossae, uh, is, is also the area known as Phrygia, or as it's spelled in our New Testament, P-H-R-Y. The, the Y was U in, in the first century. It's now like Phrygia, I guess. Uh, so, so Phrygia uh, was that area that was there. The Phrygians were there at Pentecost when the gospel was preached. In, in other words, another way of saying that the Colossians, people, Jews from Colossae, were there when Peter preached at Pentecost. So the gospel may have made its way back much earlier than we thought. We're now encountering it, though, 30 years later, around 60 A.D., as, as we encounter them here. And so, uh, in, in we go, and the, the one point, one big area here, the one thing that's astounding about this passage uh, that, that I want to bring home today is just this. Truly understand God's grace. And that's what Paul says here as he opens up with prayer to this church. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard, and who did he hear it from? He heard it from Epaphras, he heard it from Onesimus perhaps, and he, and he heard it uh, even from uh, uh, Tuchicus. Uh, Tuchicus is the guy who's carrying this letter back. We'll, we'll meet him later in the letter. But he's heard from these encounters that he has in prison. And what does he hear about them? Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people. Who doesn't want that to be your calling card? Right? If, if somebody hasn't come to our church yet, and there are a lot of people in town this week from all over, from, from Hawaii, from the West Coast, from the East Coast, from all over right now, and they're down at the uh, Virginia Beach Resort Hotel and Convention Center for the big purity conference that's been going on. A lot of us have been there throughout the weekend. Uh, but what, one of the things that's interesting is to hear what they've heard about us as the host church that, that's holding that. And, and I hope what they really do it, you know, hear and take away is that we have faith in Christ Jesus. That's where our trust is. And that we have love for all the saints. And by the way, even though the NIV says all God's people, in the, in the, the Greek, in the ESV, it's in, in the love you have for all the saints. The love you have for all those special forces. For all those that are set apart, doing some radical stuff for the glory of God. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up in you. And you can see faith, hope, and love, a common theme throughout Paul, right, right here as he begins the letter, as he often does. He does it in Thessalonians, he does it in Corinthians. The, the, the love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. Now, I love that, that, that idea. Now, the, the NIV will in a minute say, when you truly understood God's grace. But that true understanding is a true understanding of a true message. That true message has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. Amen. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, 
He's, the NIV kind of takes the edge. It's just the word slave, by the way, from, from our fellow slave, our bondservant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. So a pretty good report from Paul, but there are concerns as well, and thus he'll, he'll address the concerns throughout the letter. For this reason, and this is all still Paul kind of like, this is what I'm praying about for you guys. And this is kind of cool when you, know, you hear people say, hey, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you. Well, look at the kind of detail that Paul has in his prayers for people. And how even in chains, he is bringing the gospel without any hindrance. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may walk in a, it's, it's NIV live, but so that you may walk worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Interesting, he, st- he starts here with saying that you are filled with the knowledge of God, and now you'll be growing in the knowledge of God. Knowledge for, for Paul is is both the idea of, yes, you, you have a greater understanding, but it is always, as the rabbi and as the, as the Jew, knowledge is always intimacy. And, and always remember that, that there's always two vastly different aspects when Paul uses the word knowledge. And the, the important aspect to him is this idea of intimacy with Jesus, intimacy with the gospel, intimacy with the Father. Growing in this knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so, so that why? So that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has, what a cool term, qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. And so the letter opens. And so the prayer unfolds. And so the appreciation of the church in Colossae is brought into full bloom. As they hear of Paul in prison. Caring so deeply for them. To have this kind of detailed prayer. And uh, beseeching and thanksgiving on their behalf before the Lord. What a beautiful start to this relationship that Paul is beginning to cement through them. And I love what he says here, though, is that this is the true message of the gospel. It has come to you. And the truth of this message is powerful. It's bearing fruit. It's growing all over the world. And it's even growing right there amongst you. As I see you blossom, as you continue to grow and increase in your walk with Jesus Christ. And and as we try to kind of wrestle with, I want to really understand God's grace. Well... Part of it is to recognize that the big important thing about God's grace is that it's true. That this is at the depth of all truth. And the gospel is not true because it's bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. It's not true because it has power to unshackle you from repetitive, self-destructive sin. But it can. It's not true because it reclaimed the cold war of your marriage and melted your hearts and blossomed love into your home. It's not true because it's powerful. But yet it is powerful. Even throughout this weekend, we've heard testimonies down at the uh, Virginia Beach Resort Hotel. People being set free by the power of the gospel that really does bring you to goosebumps or tears or both. 
And you realize, wow, wow, there is power in the gospel. There is truth in the gospel. But it is not true because it is powerful. It's powerful because it is true. It's not true because it provides hope, as Paul writes here. It provides hope because this is true. It's not true because it promotes love. It promotes love because it's true. And it's not true because it instills faith or even delivers us from darkness. It can deliver us from darkness and it can stoke faith for one big reason. Because it's all true. We've got to begin with that as we begin to understand the depth of the gospel. That we shake before it, recognizing that what we encounter is nothing less than an unbridled power. But the power is there because it is true. Now, as I continue to try to kind of wrestle my my mind around even this passage and grace just from this passage. Like if I were to understand grace just from this passage, I took out a pad of paper and I began to draw a mind map. And if you, you know what that is? It's kind of like a spider chart. And I kind of put grace in the middle and I began to draw about, okay, it does this and this. And, oh, that's a lot of stuff. And then it does this and this and this. And I started connecting dots and, and it ended up with, with something that began to look like this. And this is not meant for you to like really hold on to. It's meant to overwhelm you and I'm going to bring it down to hopefully something that's better synthesized in a moment. But, but some of the things that I recognize, just if I weren't going to go outside of this very passage that we read, and I just saw the, the beauty of the gospel of grace, and if I were to understand the gospel of grace so that it will bear fruit not only in my life, but in, in, in all the area around us, here are some of the things that you can take away just from this passage. Well, first of all, this grace, this gift, this intervention of love by Jesus in your life, what does it do? It puts you in Christ. You hear the term so much that you can kind of grow callous to it. That's a big deal. You don't sit here as any ordinary person. You sit here. If you've been redeemed and and brought into new life by the Holy Spirit, by the intervention of Christ, you sit here in Christ. The contrary, if, if not, you're not. But if you have, then guess what? God is not just some sort of major force out there that you try to come to grips with. He's your father, this passage says. That's part of this gift. You've got that kind of intimate relationship. You've got an inside track. You've got a backstage pass. Because the creator of all is your father. You are in the spirit. The spirit dwells in you, this passage says. And so you love. You love better than you could have ever loved in your, in your own efforts. And you keep on loving. And on top of that, we've got friends like Epaphras. We've got bond servants, slaves of Jesus Christ that are constantly in a relationship with us, serving and happy to do it at every turn and wanting nothing more than for all of us to be refined and grow in, in our faith and our unity as, as the body of Christ. So that's just from the relationship side of things. This is what grace has, has given to us and the value of it. But then how about our identity? And, and, and again, as I was drawing all these things, they kind of all collapsed under this kind of bigger arm of identity as I was drawing it. Well, part of the identity is, as, it, as this passage concluded, he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, my old identity, I've got to recognize, is a life 
in sin and that I was under the power of darkness. Shame held title to my life. And much of what I did or didn't do was based on managing the secrets of my life. The depth of my relationship with certain people could only go so far as the degree to which I could allow parts of my life to be revealed. And I wouldn't allow them all to be revealed. Why? Because I was under the dominion of darkness and shame. There were, there were things that I would not have been able to tell Debbie, but now that I can. Why? Because there is no curtain of shame between us. Uh, also, in, in, my, in my new identity now, also my old identity is sin. And enough for me not to forget that. And not just to think, well, you know, boys will be boys. And, you know, that was just fraternity hijinks for me back in the day. But I'm kind of a good guy, even though I said that and did that and, and, and actually you know, perpetrated that. No, that was sin. That was cosmic treason against the creator God. That was knowing better about God's will and love of Jesus Christ and thumbing my nose at it and deciding I'm going to go my own way. Thank you very little. Sin, sin, sin clung to me, identified me, and would be coming with me to the judgment seat. But I have a new identity. I'm not a, a sin-clinging, repugnant excuse of a, of a human being and a waste. Now in Christ, I'm a saint. I am a saint. I'm not a sinner. Now, I, I was a sinner, and if not for Christ, I would be a sinner. And, and I'm not, not here to kind of, you know, be, be kind of you know, puffing myself up. But this is what the Bible says you are and I am. I'm a saint. How about that? Check you out. I'm a saint on a special mission with a special purpose, set apart, made holy. And you know what? None of the credit goes to me. The only ingredient I added to the whole equation was my sins. And Jesus flew into motion for the rest. And now I'm a saint. Not only that, I'm qualified. Oh my goodness. It's such a word of honor from, from the New Testament. In a, in a society in Colossae where honor mattered a lot. Such a word of honor that I am qualified to share in the inheritance of all the saints. Wow, right? Like when, when Judgment Day comes or when Jesus returns, I have been qualified to stand with honor. To be able to be received by him and be excited about the age to come as it's now being made, made known in the new kingdom of God. Who, who knew? And then lastly, I'm not under the dominion of darkness anymore. I've been transferred. I, I have been translated, as the, as the uh, King James says. That I've been plucked out of that place of, of um, anemic, worthless waste. And, and, be, and I have been relocated into a place of honor and joy and glory. I have life in the light. And I am now under the dominion. And I'm on the winning team, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. How cool is that? But not only that, I got power. We all do. So does the church in Colossae. We, we have the ability to love all in the fellowship. Even that guy. Well, you could have never loved her before. You could have gossiped about her and then said, bless her heart, as if that's love. But that's not love. Now you have the ability to love by the grace of God. You're not some fakey church lady anymore. You have real love, praise God. You get to bear fruit. 
That means that your work is not in vain. That you get to bear fruit in effective work. You have a life of significance. What you do matters and it echoes into eternity. Also, you are able to walk worthy of the Lord and you please Him. You are His Son whom He loves, with whom He is well pleased. His daughter as well. When God sees you, He sees that through the eyes of a father. And what you do is so pleasing to Him. And you just went up on His refrigerator. Again and again. Check my girl out. Check my boy out. He pleases me. She pleases me. And what she does, what a joy. And you have great endurance and patience. Because you're still in the world. It's still going on. But by the grace of God, you've got perspective. Which gives you that endurance and perspective. And over and over again, as all of these things are exercised, what does it do? But create a deeper intimacy again and again with the Father. And then, and then finally, as all of this is trying to kind of come together, just this passage, by the way, just this passage, you also have some privileges. Membership has its privileges. You've got hope in heaven. You have an inheritance in heaven. You have been ransomed. And rescued from the dominion of darkness. Sometimes when I listen to like 60s songs that have like lyrics about kind of love or ransom or rescue. No, I, I, love, I love kind of thinking about the gospel. Uh, one, one of my favorites is Rescue Me by Fontella Bass. 1965. Amazing tune. Right? But, 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 but this idea of, of you know, that, that I need your love because I'm lonely and I'm blue. Rescue me. Rescue me. And, and, and the words, as, as, as kind of beautiful as they sound in a love song, there are words, and it's really happened in, in Christ. But you have been ransomed. That's a deep word. This is actually what it means to be redeemed. And you have forgiven all the sins that before would have clung to you at the judgment seat. They have now fallen from you completely. You are Teflon as you walk to the judgment seat. If you are in grace, if you are in Christ you're not in Christ, hey, it's all waiting for you. As I often say, you don't have to climb a mountain or swim a sea. You just have to go after Jesus Christ and be able to finally embrace the, the depth of this. But, but, I, but I love this. And, you know, there, there's a fellow who years ago wrote a letter to, uh, there's a famous seminary out in the West Coast in Pasadena called Fuller Theological Seminary. Now, the, the guy who started it was, was Charles Fuller. And back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and even into the 50s, he had a radio show. And one week he announced on his radio show that the next week he would be preaching on heaven. And he received a letter where he realized, you know what, this guy, this guy gets grace. And he stands with a true understanding of the gospel of grace. Here's, here's the letter that was, uh, that was sent to him. Next Sunday, this is what the letter says as he addresses uh, Charles Fuller. Next Sunday you're to talk about heaven. I'm interested in that land because I have held a clear title to a bit of property there. For over 55 years. I didn't buy it. It was given to me without money and without price. But the donor purchased it for me at a tremendous sacrifice. I'm not hiding it for speculation since the title is non-transferable. It's not a vacant lot. For more than a half century I've been sending material. Out of which the greatest architect and builder of the universe has been building a home for me. Which will never need to be repaired because it will suit me perfectly and will never grow old. Termites can never undermine its foundation, for it rests upon the rock of ages. Fire cannot destroy it. Floods cannot wash it away. No locks or bolts will ever be placed upon its doors. 
for no vicious person can ever enter that land where my dwelling stands. Now almost completed and ready for me to enter it and abide in peace eternally without fear of being ejected. There is a valley of deep shadow between the place where I live now in California and that to which I shall journey in a very short time. The man was quite ill. I cannot reach my home in the city of God without passing through the dark valley of shadows. But I am not afraid because the best friend that I have ever had went through the same valley alone. Time ago and drove away all the gloom. He has stuck by me through thick and thin since we first met and became acquainted 55 years ago. And I hold his promise in printed form, never to forsake and never to leave me alone. He will be with me as I walk through the valley of shadows and I shall not lose my way when he is with me. I hope to hear your sermon on heaven next Sunday from my home, but I have no assurance that I shall be able to do so. My ticket to heaven has no date marked for the journey, no return coupon, and no permit for baggage. Yes, I am ready to go and may not be here while you are talking next Sunday, but I shall meet you there someday. What a beautiful, what a beautiful sentiment of getting the gospel of grace and walking in a manner worthy now that we've gotten that gospel of grace. But at the essence of it, the good news is not just good news about Jesus. It, the good news is Jesus. Right. Jesus. He is our good news. He is who is presented to us. He is the one that delights in us. He is the one that has given us this all. Amen. He strode across the stage of world history, the greatest man to ever live. His was a backbone of tempered steel, a heart aflame with an untiring passion for justice. He had a mind that caused his hearers to marvel. His hands were generous with affection and had eyes that penetrated into one's very secrets. Yet he was born in an obscure backwater village to a peasant girl with the shame of scandal clinging to her and to him. He was an unremarkable construction worker until he was 30, and then for the next three years became a homeless, itinerant preacher. Never owned a home, never wrote a book, never held an office, never uh, headed a family, never went to college, never put his foot inside a truly big city, never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born, Never even did one of the things that usually accompanies greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While he was still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them secretly betrayed him. Another publicly denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He endured slander, masked as justice in the midst of the trial for his very life. He was belittled by his brute captors as a game piece before they unleashed weapons of torture upon his body. He was stripped bare, humiliated, and nailed to a cross between two murderers. And while he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property and had at that point on earth his undergarments. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave 
through the pity of a friend. But his enemies could not destroy him and the grave could not hold him. I'm going to quote from an essay called The Solitary Life where the author writes, I am far from within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. Twenty long centuries ago have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race. He is the new Adam. He is Earth's great reset button. He was the one everyone wanted. He was a man among men. He was the secret ambition of all who sincerely sought to follow God. He was the rabbi of rabbis, the master of masters. And later we know, Lord of lords, king of kings. And in the good news, he turns your way. And as he gathers you into focus, only to disarm you with the sincerity of his smile and disrupt you with the enormity of his offer. Deny yourself and follow me. With those words, you've immediately been ushered off the passive platform and strapped into the thrill ride that steals your breath and doubles your heartbeat. Your life now matters. You can join a significance that makes your greatest aspirations now seem embarrassingly paltry. And as your ride ascends to heights never before visited, you quickly contemplate the risk-reward and fear-faith calculations in your head. Only he can make it all make sense. Only he makes it good news. And he chose you. His brilliance now guides you. His very body and blood ransomed you, washed you, and certified you. He shed his own blood for your soul. And he won't forsake you now. He was forsaken so that you will never be alone. He won't humiliate you now. He was humiliated through nakedness and spittle so that you'll always stand tall in grand honor. He won't heap guilt upon you now. He was defiled before God with all your guilt. He reached into your very conscience to claim and receive all your guilt. Why? So that you can serve the living God with a clear conscience. He won't let Satan make claims for or about you. You were bought at a price. And even on your most miserable day, you're worth it. Because he descended from his throne, he emptied himself of privilege... Not for this stained glass, rosy filter of you, but for your most miserable, shadowy, dank, strobe light corruption of yourself. You were worth it then, and even more so, you are worth it now. But nonetheless, He alone determines your value. You're priceless. You're precious. You're righteous. You're family. You're lovely. You're his. Jesus chose you. You win. When you get grace, God gets you.
You've won. You live your life having won. And to conclude, let me use a little illusion that has been popular this week. I want you, as a charge for this week, to let this gospel message through the book of Colossians wash over you. I want you to read the book of Colossians this week. And the reason that I have this W up here is that Paul gives a charge in his prayer that I want you to take into your quiet times this week as you read the book of Colossians. And it's these W's. He begins in verse 9 and ends in verse 12 with this idea. You've already been filled with intimacy, with knowledge of God. And now I want you to, as he fills you with all knowledge of his will. As you read this book, I want you to jot down what is the will of God and what I've just read. Not only of his will, but through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. After you've jotted down what his will is, marvel for a moment that it is the Holy Spirit that gives you this wisdom to be able to discern his will. And praise God for just a second and take that time. But then keep reading. And then also recognize why? So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. Literally, so that you may walk in a way worthy of the Lord. Then jot down in your quiet time how it is based on what Jesus has given to you, your identity, your relationship, all of the gifting, all the status that you now have. What is it that you would do that would be worthy in the way that you walk based on what you've just seen in his will? And then finally, this is going to be part of it when we walk. Go ahead and bear fruit in every good work. Do work. Do work for Jesus. Do it not to earn anything, but do it because you've earned everything. Do it not so you have greater worth. Do it because he's already determined your worth. You are worthwhile. Do something worthwhile with your week. And and as you finish that quiet time, determine what the work is that you're going to do. And then when you come back to your quiet time the next day, and you look at what his will was, marvel that through the Spirit, you'd have the wisdom to discern that. And then you... Not just let that be words that float about, but became the way you actually walked in a way worthy of God and did some work and made a difference for Him. Marvel then how you grew in intimacy with God. I guarantee you that if you approach your quiet times, as you read through the book of Colossians this week, you'll come back here ready to run through a wall for Jesus Christ. Let's get back here next week with some spackle. See you then.